This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Coral reef tanks continue to gain in popularity, and advances in technology and coral reef biology and ecology have made reef keeping much more accessible. My guest today is Chris Meckley of ACI Aquaculture, a well-known coral aquaculture and wholesale facility in Plant City, Florida. In part one of our Reef and Coral Keeping 101 series, we discuss tanks, equipment, and accessories. Join us as Chris continues our series with part two, an overview of aquascaping and water chemistry. We'll be right back after these messages. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life. And that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for dogs and cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select pet co-locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Chris Meckley, owner of ACI Aquaculture, a coral aquaculture and wholesale facility in Plant City, Florida. Chris is continuing our discussion of reef and coral keeping in part two, aquascaping and water chemistry and overview. Hey, Chris, thanks again for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Roy. I really enjoy this. It's fun. So I think we're going to just dive right in. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit, got some, some personal information from you. We'll probably hit you up again a little bit later with some more, but I wanted to just start right into our 101 overview. So we discussed equipment and accessories, including tanks, filtration, and other must-haves. Let's now go into these other areas. Salt water sounds like a simple thing, but what are important considerations for sourcing salt and water for your reef tank? Definitely some of the most important things are the, the salt itself, the brand of salt that you're using. I mean, there's a lot of different brands out there, and the majority of them are, you know, been around for you know decades and are, are very good, depending again on the type of system you want to keep and depending on the shop that you use for your advice, it's going to determine probably what brand you would use for your system. Um, me personally, I'm very, very particular with what we put into our farming systems. And um, we use a product that is, you know, blended by hand and not mass produced. Um, but that's for us. You know, it tends to be quite a bit more expensive. So there's, um, again, a dozen different manufacturers and Maybe not quite that many, but there's a half a dozen at least manufacturers of different salts that are on the market. And uh, 
some of them I don't agree with what they do, but others, you know, 100% agree with it. And um, it's a matter of, you know, the shops, if you go to a shop and you're taking advice from them and you see the quality of their animals and you like what you see, by all means, go with what, with, um, with what they're doing. I can't really put one brand over another because the one that I use, in my opinion, supersedes them all because I know how it's being produced and it's not being produced on a mass scale. But for hobbyists, you know, it's definitely something, you know, that uh, they can graduate to down the road. The basics that, and, the, and the salt brands that are on the market today that are very common are definitely more than suitable to set your aquarium system up. So that is definitely, you know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of times people use the same brand of salt and they use the same brand of additives for their system. So, you know, that way you're familiarized with it. And, you know, if it's close and local, then just keep, you know, go with that. And um, if you want to graduate down the road, as you become more seasoned, um, you know, people can always message me and I can steer them in the right direction to go with what we use if they want to go with. It's actually not more expensive in the long run. It's actually cheaper in the long run to use the higher quality. But um, it's hard to wrap your head around the beginning with expenses. Yeah. And then uh, water, you know, tap versus DI, RO, those sorts of things. Definitely don't want to use tap water unless you are from an area that's got, you know, a pristine well system or you've got mountain runoff that is not contaminated by city water if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you can get a, a well drilled and you have um you can get that water tested and find out what's actually in it you don't want to just use straight well water or city water in most cases we have a well here i don't trust the tap water that comes out of the ground i've also had it tested um and we use reverse osmosis and then we run that water through after it goes through reverse osmosis which purifies it down to a very low tds total dissolved solids which is two in our system, and then we run it through a DI bed, deionization bed, which removes the remaining possible contaminants that are in water. So we want zero TDS, but zero total dissolved solids in it for us and our systems. I recommend that for anybody, unless you have a good source that's got minerals and stuff like that that are very important to the reef system. And it might be more beneficial if you have a good well system that doesn't have iron and arsenic and a slew of other things that can be found in treated water from the city or well water, depending on where you are in the country. So in most cases, you're going to be buying a reverse osmosis system and a DI system that goes to that so you can purify the water. All right, great. Now, I know in your, um, in your kind of FAQs for hobbyists, it's important you mentioned rock. So tell us a little bit about rock, live rock. You know, what, what do some of the hobbyists that maybe don't have any idea why rock is important and different types of rock for a reef tank, what they are? Well, it, it, it's, it's super important. It's porous. It's surface area. You know, and, you know, something that I've been toying around with is not even having any other filtration media whatsoever other than a small amount of live rock in the system, other than your protein skimmer which is important because the rock's not going to remove that as efficiently as the protein skimmer, the, the, the fish waste. It will, but the rock itself, basically, the more surface area you have in your aquarium, the more area for bacteria to grow. Bacteria is the basis of all life, minus the sun. Without bacteria living on this planet, we're all in trouble as well. The basic organisms, the smallest, most minute organisms, are what is one of the most important aspects of the ecosystem you're trying to create in the aquarium. So live rock is extremely important. It used to say you have to go with one pound per gallon, but you know that myth has been busted a long time ago. Go with the rock that makes it aesthetically pleasing for you as a hobbyist. And the type of rock that you use, personally, I'm a huge fan of old school, real live rock that was taken from the ocean. 
And please don't frown upon that because the amount of rock that was taken from the ocean for aquariums is minuscule because it wasn't even taken from the reefs. It was basically dug out of the sand in most cases and wasn't really affecting things for the small amount that was actually taken. But that true live rock has so much character to it. And also it has organisms in it that are very beneficial for your aquarium. It also comes with its downfalls. It has pests and other things that you don't want in your aquarium if it's not being, say, quarantined for months and made sure that it's not a possibility for those bad pathogens or pests to make it into your aquarium. So the way that it's done nowadays, and this is pretty common, is we live in Florida here, so it might not be as accessible as um, it is to people here in Florida, but we have basically living on a big dead reef. And as they dig through the sand, which we are a big sandbox here in Florida, Roy, as you know, <laughs> the farther you dig, the chances of you actually coming across an old fossilized reef. And down in Miami is easier. It's closer to the surface than it is up here in Tampa area where we are. So there's uh, in Miami, they mine the fossilized reefs for calcium to make concrete, which is way better than what they do in some of these Far East countries where they mine the reef for the calcium to make concrete, which is just beyond me. I can't wrap my head around that because without the reefs, we all die. But again, I I digressed. I didn't mean to. Um, (laughs) Getting um, fossilized reef rock is common, like Marco rock or Julian Sprung stacks rock, which I think is gotten from the Marco rock. It's basically, they call it reef bones is another thing you can get, which is basically just mined fossilized reefs. That's a good way to set up an aquarium because it's, it's, it is a, it's reef rock. It's porous. It's not as porous as the real live rock that was taken, you know, in the past, but it does a really good job. I've got one of my systems that two of my systems that were strictly set up with nothing but fossilized reef rock. It works really well. I battled some issues with the fossilized reef rock in the beginning, which was a little bit of phosphates, which is again, something that is very commonly mined here in Florida. And it's, in tends to be in the dry rock as well, but in minute amounts, it just takes a little time for that to, to be removed from the system when it's first set up. But usually once it's biologically active, which is the ultimate goal, once you put dry rock in, it biologically activates over time. And you can, we'll get into that more, Roy, here in, uh, as the segments go on. But um, definitely only put in what is aesthetically pleasing for you. If they tell you one pound per gallon, that's a myth. It's not true. If that was true in here, I mean, I've got a 5,000-gallon coral system, and it's got maybe 600 pounds of live rock in it. Um, I'm pretty far off. That's what, a ton and a half? No, over two tons is what I should have in my system. That doesn't make sense to me. I, I know surface area is surface area, whether it is the walls of your tank, the silicone on the seams, the frag plug that your coral is glued to, or the rock that's the coral that the coral came in on, or the surface area inside of it any part of your aquarium is going to grow bacteria. And we found that that one pound per gallon is just a myth and just a overkill for you. It actually makes things more difficult for you to enjoy with an aquarium. I remember when they used to make rock tanks that were big rock walls across the back. And now you see these same size aquariums with these beautiful pillars and just a small amount of rock. And it's very aesthetically pleasing and it's more room for the fish to swim and less places for bad critters to hide and pathogens to stick to so what is aesthetically pleasing to you is fine and you can even just use a really cool aquascape that somebody made um that's just one big like a nano tank just one little aquascape that's like maybe 15 pounds in a 30 gallon tank and you're perfectly fine that's gonna 
it's going to seed your tank or you have plenty of, plenty of surface area for bacteria to grow to keep your tank as a biological environment, not just, you know, chasing and keep to keep it going. Great. And so I want to take a break in a minute or two, but I wanted you to uh, talk a little bit about the bottom of a tank. Most people don't even think of the bottom of a tank as being important, but you know, much better than I, why looking at and considering what should be on the bottom of a tank is critical for reef systems. What, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I go both ways with um, having sand or substrate on the bottom or going with a bare bottom. You have to look at a coral reef itself. You know, when you're talking about something like the Great Barrier Reef, it's a thousand miles long. There's tens of thousands of small reefs that create this reef. So you have your reef environment where the corals are growing, which is the rock, the, the structure. And then you have basically between all the reefs, you have sand. So you have to decide whether you want to have an aquarium that you can put a lot of flow in and not have to worry about the tritus settling in the dead spots or whether that's not something that's 100% necessary. And you know, when, when you're talking about different types of reef environments, certain corals live in the sand. So if you want a, a large polystony coral reef, or an SPS coral reef, you might be different with what you want as your substrate for the bottom of the aquarium. You might want to have a bare bottom for an SPS reef, because then at that point, you can put flow that's going to just be like a washing machine inside of there, which, and I say that because SPS corals live in the waves. They need that heavy, heavy current. And if you have sand or substrate on the bottom, it can be very difficult for you to get the flow correct in the aquarium so that it's good for the corals and not blowing the sand all around. So there's benefits to a sand bottom and there's downfalls to the sand bottom. And that's one of them is, you know, stirring it up and not keeping it stable or it all blowing around and it just being all pushed to one side because of the amount of flow in your tank. And then pushing it back, it's still good. It can be a pain in the rear end. Personally, I don't like the sand because I want that flow. And the corals that like the sand don't have to have a sand bed to live. You know, they can be on the bare bottom and they'll be fine as well. So the downfalls to sand I think are more than the benefits to sand on, as your substrate. Again, aesthetically pleasing is a sand bottom. I love the look of a sand bottom, but you have the, the downfalls to it are is they can actually hold phosphates and nitrates, nutrients that can be, that can build and build and build in a system and can be difficult for you then to remove them naturally. And then you end up having to go with chemicals. Natural means of moving them is by far the best way. And sand harbors those things. So again, that's not always a bad thing either, because sometimes some people can't keep nutrients in their aquarium and the sand bed helps them keep that small amount of nutrients there because it holds them for them. Again, with all the technologies that are out there and the way things are, being, are changing, it's a matter of the type of corals you would like to keep is going to determine whether you should have a sand bed or not, or you just make up your mind right from the get-go. I like it without, or I like it with, and I'm going to make it work no matter what. And that's, you know... I'm going to leave that. It's uh, up to the person keeping and maintaining the apartment. Okay. No, that's a good consideration, definitely. Well, let's take a short break, and we'll continue our discussion of reef tanks with my guest, Chris Meckley, owner of ACI Aquaculture in Plant City, Florida, after these messages from our sponsors. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. 
With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. And continuing our conversation with my guest, Chris Meckley, coral guru and owner of ACI Aquaculture in Plant City, Florida. So now we're going to start getting into some of the more kind of complicated things, Chris. And as I mentioned, I think to you earlier, I you know don't want to necessarily go into the major details of you know regulating, monitoring. We're going to do that in a separate show. But for now, I kind of wanted you to introduce our listeners to sort of the concepts of the, um, you know, the major parameters that are important for a reef tank, you know, just in brief and talk a little bit about them. So let's start with some of these. Let's start with salinity. Salinity. Well, it depends on where you are in the world is going to determine on what the salinity of the ocean is. We always like to say that the average salinity of the world's ocean is 35.4 parts per thousand. And I say parts per thousand and not the 1.02 six five which is salinity or um specific gravity because the specific gravity scale can be very misleading where in parts per thousand you know you are going to keep accuracy better so at 1.0265 the difference between that and salinity down to say 1.024 is fairly big jump in parts per thousand so I always say, you know, most places will start people off with reading with a hydrometer. Um, I say, don't waste your money on a hydrometer because in most cases they're very inaccurate because they can't be accurate scientifically and affordable for a hobbyist to purchase them. I mean, if you wanted a truly accurate hydrometer, you're, you're talking about hundreds or even thousands of dollars to get that accuracy. And then ha- using it properly is the other key. So there's too many variables in there that make it, in my opinion, more difficult for a reefer to understand their selenium fluctuations by, by using a hydrometer. A refractometer is another method of testing salinity. And personally, I used to use them and strictly use them, but I learned from a buddy of mine who's a physicist, you're also playing with fire on a refractometer because it does exactly that. It refracts light. So what you and I both see could be completely different with that light refraction. And when we calibrate it, we you know calibrate it to my eye, could be calibrated differently to your eye or to anybody else that's calibrating it, and you could be completely off. And also it's going to determine on the amount of light going into the refractometer is going to determine whether you are going to get an accurate reading or not. So they're, they're consistently inaccurate. Um, same with hydrometers. I believe in conductivity because it's electrical current. You, you cannot go wrong with an electrical current because you're reading the conductivity of the water, which gives you parts per thousand or salinity if you want to read it in that. So basically to make this simple, conductivity is the easiest way, but you just have to make sure you clean the conductivity probe every single time you use it. If you do not clean it with reverse osmosis, the eye water, it will be inaccurate in, in time, usually after the first or second or third use to start building up a drop that dries in there. 
can leave some salt, which will cause the calibration to be off. So they're easier to calibrate, easier to use, and they also are reading according to temperature. Temperature is key with knowing what your salinity is. The colder the temperature, the more dense the water, the higher salinity. The warmer, the less dense, the lower the salinity. So temperature, knowing the temperature of your water while you're testing the salinity is super important. And most people don't talk about that. But as a farmer, it's something that I, of course, like to relay. And we recommend the HANA conductivity probe. It's a little white thing. It's blue. There's a couple other ones out there, but it's relatively inexpensive. And it's good to buy that first. Then it's to buy the hydrometer and then realize you got to buy that again down the road. Buy one and be done. It saves you money in the long run. So how would they determine the right conductivity then? And, um, you know, if you're shooting for 34 to 35 PPT? So basically, when you're mixing up the water or you're testing the water in the aquarium, you want to have a separate cup to hold the water. So that way, the electrical currents that are flowing through your aquarium from the equipment that you have on it doesn't interfere with the conductivity. So you take a little sample of the water out and you put it inside. You put your conductivity probe down inside of that cup of water to measure. That way, there's no outside electrical currents influencing what the actual reading is. So when you get the meter, you calibrate it with the calibration solution that comes with, and then you start using it, and then you clean it immediately, store it again, and you're good to go. Okay, so it'll actually measure in parts per thousand, the conductivity meter? Correct, correct. Conductivity probe measures in parts per thousand or measures in salinity. It all depends on what you want to use. I always recommend parts per thousand. It's so much, since I've been doing it, a lot less issues, let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, great. So let's talk now a little bit. And again, you don't, uh, for these, you don't have to talk about, I know the measurements are kind of also going to be tricky, but if you can maybe mention the kind of importance for uh, these specific parameters, starting with uh, hardness and alkalinity. So calcium, magnesium, alkalinity, why are those important for reef tanks? Well, they're very consistent in the ocean and without alkalinity or hardness being at the correct levels and the calcium and the magnesium, the corals can't grow. So they can they can survive, but in reality, they will not survive and do very well if they don't have the calcium and the carbonate hardness to lay down their calcium carbonate skeleton. So that's the most important. There's four parameters, and I, I would say there's three parameters that are super important. And you didn't mention one of them, so I'm not going to say it until you mention it. Carbonate hardness and calcium are, are super, super important. Magnesium is another one that's extremely important as well. Those are the three basic elements that are needed to grow for the, the skeleton to grow. So keeping them at the right parameters at the right levels is, is definitely key. And I'm sure we'll get into the, what they should be according to what I believe and what they are compared to the ocean as we move forward in this, seg- in this, uh, in this uh, little series. Okay, great. And then, of course, I think most of the uh, freshwater hobbyists and, and even folks that are just starting um, are familiar with the nitrogen cycle, at least ammonia and maybe nitrite. Um, obviously, nitrate is a little bit more important in a reef. I shouldn't say obviously, but so maybe talk a little bit now about ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate as kind of their importance in a, in a reef system. Just like any ecosystem, you know, if it's a sterile environment, you're going to eventually get something in there that's going to cause bacteria to grow, which would be nutrients. And the main thing to start off with would be ammonia. So to get an aquarium to cycle, you got to get ammonia in there in order for it to start becoming an ecosystem. Because when you first set it up, it's not an ecosystem yet. It's literally just a sterile box with water and some substrate. And in order for the corals, the fish to survive in there, it has to become biologically active. So ammonia is the basis to start bacteria growth. So ammonia is added to the aquarium. Either there's multiple ways you can do it, and we'll, we'll go into cycling and aquarium down the road here. But you get ammonia in your system, 
And what happens then, bacteria starts to grow to break that ammonia down. The ammonia is broken down into nitrites, NO2. In a freshwater system, NO2 is very toxic to, to the animals. In a saltwater system, it's not really toxic until it gets to it. Don't hold me to this. I think it's like seven to nine is when it becomes really a problem um, with the saltwater fish. So ammonia levels above one are toxic to any animal going into it. As soon as the bacteria starts to grow and breaking all that ammonia down, and, and when we cycle aquariums, well, I won't go there. I'll, I'll go back to what we were talking about. You got to get the ammonia in there to break down into nitrites, the bacteria, and then bro from there, it's broken down into nitrates. Nitrates are a common nutrient that we find in reef environments. And believe it or not, are super, super, super important for the corals themselves because of that symbiotic relationship they have with the zooxanthellae algae that lives in their tissue, which feeds them. So without nitrates, they can't produce the sugars for them to feed the corals. So you have to have small amounts of nitrates in there, but you don't want them to be elevated. Elevated nitrate levels can cause major issues in an aquarium, and we'll touch base on that down the road as well. Um, but the importance of there not being ammonia that's probably the most important one not to be in a saltwater environment because it's very toxic to the animals. Um, in, in cases like fish, if you have an ammonia spike in the aquarium and you have nothing that neutralizes that, it burns their gills, which then can kill the fish. So bottom line, the nitrogen cycle, which we're talking about, is very, very important. Ammonia to nitrate to nitrate. And then exporting that is done by the protein skimmer and by the plant life living in your ecosystem as it evolves. Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, just as a reminder for some of the folks that may not remember, uh, ammonia is, a lot of it is actually produced by the fish as waste going out of their gills when they're um, eating protein. And so Chris was kind of referring to the fact that in an, his kind of sterile box situation, when you just start up, there's none of these bacteria there to help break that waste um, coming from the fish's metabolism down. So yeah, definitely, definitely really critical. So uh, we talked a little bit about the nitrogen cycle. Tell us about phosphate. Phosphate. Phosphate is the one that usually is the most difficult for everybody to deal with. Um, phosphate is, um, it comes from, of course, fish waste and coral waste. But the biggest contributor to phosphate in most of our systems is overfeeding. And that is, you know, important. Like we said um, in the last episode, you can't overfeed your fish, but you can overfeed your system. Overfeeding the system is what will be the biggest downfall to most people's aquariums. And um, that's why feeding once per day is not always recommended. Usually doing small, really small feedings of multiple times a day is by far better because then you know your fish are going to eat the majority of it. You're not going to get that nitrate and phosphate buildup that can be from decomposing food that wasn't utilized by the animals themselves. So removing phosphates, we use algaes to remove the phosphates is probably the easiest way to get them removed. Believe it or not, protein skimmers do remove phosphorus but they don't remove the phosphate. So, but if they're removing, if it's removing the phosphorus, it does bring down the phosphate, but not nearly as much as say natural means of like algae to remove that. And once you find out balance on how to remove phosphates with, you know, either an algae scrubber type deal or just by not allowing it to build in the first place, which is the ultimate goal, there is other means of removing it, but I don't recommend them, but we can get into that down um, the road here for removal of phosphates and, and further segments. But again, extremely important for photosynthesis. So you need it, but you don't need much. It, very minute amounts is very important for, for an ecosystem, um, like a reef environment to survive and uh, keep the animals healthy. Okay, great. And I know uh, you, you touched on uh, temperature already. So let's, in the previous podcast, let's talk about pH. Um, and I know you're a, a huge advocate of pH and uh, the importance of it. 
Uh, maybe touch briefly on kind of your, your thoughts on pH in a reef system. pH in a reef system. You know, my whole career, nobody ever talks about pH. And um, it's been something that always bothered me because, you know, the biggest essential threat to the world right now is global warming and ocean acidification. Well, if that's the biggest threat to our planet right now, why isn't it the biggest threat to the animals living in our aquarium? The pH in the ocean is falling by literally a 0.5 is what they're saying, even though I haven't been able to find it around the world where I have people testing the pH of the reefs they're diving on. It's still something you got to think about. If your pH in your aquarium is below 8.2 to 8.25 at any given time during a 24-hour span, what is that doing to your aquarium? What is it doing to the animals themselves? It's extremely important to keep your pH at between 8.2 and 8.3 at the lowest points. I keep mine at 8.28 is the lowest it goes because natural seawater is at 8.3. And it rises naturally during the day when photosynthesis is, 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 is happening in your aquarium. And people ask, well, why is my pH so low at nighttime? Well, pH is so low at nighttime because there's no photosynthesis removing the CO2 that's being absorbed by your aquarium. And it goes back to global warming and the CO2 outputs that the human beings on this planet have been pumping into the atmosphere for decades, the water is absorbing it. So as the water absorbs it, it lowers the pH. So in your home, which is a closed sealed in box, basically, with another closed sealed in box inside of it with water in it, when there's no photosynthesis happening in your aquarium and that CO2 not being utilized is being absorbed by the water, it just rises, which then in turn drops your pH in your system. And will corals live? They'll survive. Yes, they will. I mean, I did it for two decades without keeping my pH from being suppressed. But what we learned in two years of keeping our pH from going below 8.29, corals thrive in an aquarium. They grow faster. They grow better. They expand their polyps more. They're just healthier. The fish too, believe it or not, the little issues that we've seen on fish in the past where we have like little fin issues or lateral line issues, they're gone. They disappeared. We had some also some issues with corals that were getting diseased that we couldn't figure out how to fix. And when the pH was no longer suppressed, those diseases disappeared. And we did nothing but keep the pH from being suppressed. So acidic water in a saltwater environment, which I'm saying below 8.0, is I guess coral skeletons can start to dissolve at 7.8 pH. We used to go down to 7.6. So we would go as high as 7.1, 9. Now, we don't go below that 8.28 mark, and what a world difference. The growth is way faster, and as a farmer, it's very important. For a hobbyist, it's not necessarily as important to keep it as high as I do because the means of being able to do that are pretty much out of reach in most cases because of, the, of what you have to use to keep the pH up. But there's a cheap, a very inexpensive product that we'll, of course, talk about down the road when we're talking about maintaining parameters um, and the cost-effective ways versus the ways that can become money pits and use the ways in the beginning of a reef and then use the least cost or the, the more cost-effective ways as your tank matures, which will also be a way for you to maintain your pH at a more natural level than allowing it to suppress over those nighttime hours, which is when it normally happens. Great. And yeah, thanks again so much for your time. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this part of the series. 
You have done a great job explaining some of the kind of important concepts that will hopefully help the hobbyists think a little bit harder on their own tanks and when they decide to set up a reef, uh, reef type system. In part three of our Reef and Coral Keeping 101 series, we'll talk more about, as you mentioned, how to test for, monitor, and regulate these par parameters. So hopefully everyone will stay tuned for those coming up. Thanks very much to our guest, Chris Meckley, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. And uh, Chris, for this segment, do you have any, uh, any again, final words of wisdom or thoughts for the listeners? Keep it simple. Bottom line, I'm going to say that every time. Keep it simple. doesn't have to be fancy and exotic. Graduate to that as you go and become a more seasoned hobbyist. You don't want to be discouraged. You know, it can get discouraged with the cost and expense. And if you keep it simple, that discouragement is one variable eliminated from you becoming a successful reaper. Bottom line. Great advice. Great advice. Thanks again. Please be sure to check out Chris's web links found on his Aquarium Mania guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please be sure to visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and stay tuned for more on reef and coral keeping. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.